Hi there, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to today's episode of the Strategy in Leadership podcast. My name is Anthony Taylor. In this podcast, we interview senior leaders and thought leaders to get their best practices on leading teams, creating and executing strategy, and fostering the culture within an organization that works. My guest today is Melissa McComas, who is the Chief Strategy Officer at Piper Mantis Literary. Melissa, how are you today? Hi, Anthony. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, thanks. It's a beautiful day. I'm in a great mood, and I can't complain, to be honest. Indeed, nor can I. The day is still young. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to speak with me. I'm really excited to uh, be able to have you share your experience with our listeners. Just as a way of getting started, can you tell people a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are now? Of course. I originally started out a few decades back as a young junior executive at a company called MCI, doing their friends and family campaign. I come from a family of leaders, like I think we all do, but essentially their family business from the time I came in to the world was well over 130 years old. So that's something rigorous to live up to. I learned as a young executive from a CSR management standpoint in a call center that uh, we had about a minute and a half to solve a problem or we were talking too long. Going forth and into an additional career, I then went into the buying aspect for a major retail company in their chain supply, was then promoted as their promotional director for over 1,600 stores in the cosmetic industry called uh, Cosmetic Center and Salon. I would call that system a precursor to what we know as the Ulta and Sephoria's of today with mass merchandise combined with high-end merchandise. And then I went out on my own in 1997 and started my first uh, brokerage, basically doing what I did internally, but through the vendor base that had already developed and uh, taking a small percentage, matching relationships between buyers and users within the multimedia sectors. Multimedia at the time being TV, radio, film, and print, graphic design uh, for consumer and business-to-business, things of that nature, and then expanded eventually in 2000 to be inclusive of underwriting, production, executive production, and agenting of authors and television producers and directors, syndicating television series, and all those interesting things. So it was uh, something unique, and we're still doing it today. I find it incredibly interesting to take something from nothing. We deal in ideas. We're an idea factory. We take others' wonderful ideas, and we help them get to where they need to go. That's awesome. Well, that is, you know, the true essence of strategy is, you know, given everything that's going on, what are the choices you are going to make? What are the choices you're not going to make? And then how do you get to that ideal place? And and it sounds like, you know, over your career, you've had a lot of those strategic opportunities and a lot of those sort of project opportunities. What would you say are some of like the key learnings that you've sort of developed and that take you through, you know, the successful either ideation or generation of a project that's sort of like your guiding principles to make magic happen for your clients? Yes. Excellent question, Anthony. And as you were asking me the question, I was already thinking of an answer and then I stopped myself 
because I'm very reminiscent of what some of my great mentors in life would say to me, which is, you know, listen first, think, and then listen again. So in answer to the first uh, section of that, for me, which I did not say in your first intro, was uh, the key to any strategy, of course, is always through mentorship. And uh, I've had a lot of great mentors. Uh, They imparted upon me, even if you think you're doing it incredibly well, go back and make sure that you can do it even better. So from a strategic standpoint, when we look at projects and we're forming teams internally at the company and with our executive directors, it's a fine-tuning of understanding the balance between aptitude and attitude. I think that's really a core to having a successful strike team for development. Okay. Anything else that you would share? So, you know, the background, if you're listening to this, you are probably a middle manager, CEO, somebody that's leading teams, developing strategy and making things happen. So, you know, what I really took from that, oh, I mean, I took the three things actually. So listen first, (laughs) then think, then listen again. The idea that you need a mentor, and I think no matter where anybody's at, they could use a mentor. And then the balance between, you know, skill and attitude in terms of how the job. So how do you find that mentorship or how have you found uh, the people with the right aptitude and attitude on your teams that you've designed? I look for, I would say, well, it's actually one quality. The first quality is integrity. And people have asked me over the past few decades, why integrity? I firmly believe that uh, integral thinking, you know, from uh, a moral acuity, you have an understanding that we're all in it together, and that regardless of objectives of work field, that there's a value-based system. Uh, And when I say value, it's not about monetization, but working within a group in breeding synergy and understanding that we're all as smart as we may be, but at the same time, we have to complement each other. The loudest voice in the room is not the one that is always the leader. So I think that's important in a team environment. I myself uh, find that sometimes I have to sit back and really let the directors of the company and the middle managers, you know, give giving them enough um, guidance, but as well enough leverage that they can outperform within their own field of task and have the freedom to try new things. Trying new things is, is very important. Of course, there are deadlines, but within that, you have to have your people feel comfortable enough to have the freedom to discover the abilities that you chose them for the job task and our executive role. So one is integrity. Two, for me, is also simplification. I find breaking something down complexly, I'm drawn to managers and directors who can simplify things that could be complicated. And that that may not be um, a no-brainer, perhaps, but I have found that most take a complicated scenario and complicate it more instead of breaking it down to the smaller pieces. That's where the, the... product line and or the production development of a task seems to break apart. 
And it really is from a management standpoint that in working with teams, everyone should have a voice, but I think it's as well when they choose to use the voice is very important. And a form of communication is knowing your audience. So number three would be know your audience. I may be someone who's comfortable in explicating via verbal communication. Others like to type letters, notes, uh, IMing, texting. It's whatever your form of communication may be, and not everyone's form of communication is the same. So when we're working in structural pipelines of technology, sometimes it um, is not as functional as it is sitting down and rolling up your sleeves, taking off your suit jacket, ordering some takeout food, and having an old-fashioned think tank until, you know, the wee hours of the morning with your team members. And at the end of the day, we do understand that everyone has family, friends, and a life. So the environment, too, of knowing your strengths, but also knowing that you're enjoying what you're doing. I think it's very possible for everyone to enjoy what they do. It's a matter of how it's approached. What I took from from what you shared there, you know, in terms of giving everybody a voice, both knowing your audience, stepping back, letting other people lead, and then guiding and providing leverage is really just, or I hear it as an internal dance between, you know, the, the push and pull. So, you know, you want to allow people to contribute, but you also want to help them to do that. And then you want to meet them where they're at so that you can best provide the tools. So it, it sounds like, you know, really as a, as a project manager, as a leader, you've done a really good job of taking stock of the people who are on your team and being really aware of like when you need to step in, when you need to give some rope and where, how you can best support them. So truly a leader in that regard because you're aware of what your team's needs are and then jump in or step back depending on, on where they're at. Would you say that that's, you know, how you operate? Yes, I would. And there are many times I have to hold myself back. And there are other times as well when directors may say, why aren't you weighing in? And my limited uh, affirmation will be, you've, you've got this. You have it. You don't, you don't need my assistance. And that's not in a closed off way. But I, I think a more expanded way to say it is, wait a minute, you're here for a reason. You have this. Uh, just look within yourself to find the answer. I think sometimes there's a lot of coddling that goes on corporately, in, just in my opinion, where some of your strongest leaders within your organizational structure as well have moments of self-doubt. And I believe there are two ways to handle that. Uh, one is to encourage but the other is sometimes to give them some breathing room. If there's an ability to extend a deadline, then extend the deadline within reason, of course, to give them the ability to lead their team and a little bit of breathe room goes a long way. Mm -hmm. you know, I think that's, you know, you, you put it in a really great way and you can, sounds like you you understand yourself and how to manage your, your own self. So other people say, Hey, why aren't you doing, this why are you doing this from an outsider like in the stands perspective but having that experience and you know on one hand i want to say the years of experience on the other hand it sounds like you've put yourself in positions to develop that muscle that allows you to know when to lead you know with a tighter grip and when to you know give a bit more space and i think that all the leaders on our podcast and you know if you're listening at home and even young leaders it's, it's not about getting it right 
it's about putting yourself in a position to see what works and to be able to you know, make mistakes if you need to, but, you know, find what works best for you, find what works best for your team, but knowing that there's not a right way for one person. It's just about managing those situations and as they come up and, and dealing with what you can, when you can. Oh, definitely, Anthony. If, if you ask me what is your one challenge on a daily basis, that's it. Knowing when to give input and when not to. And having that own uh, kind of internal, you know, sensei fight with myself to go, it's okay, uh, grasshopper will be fine. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Sometimes it's say, okay, they're there, they're fine. Yes, they've climbed to the top of the tree, they're not going to fall out, it's okay. You know, walk away, they, you know, because that's really ultimate, you know, faith in your team. You know, there's something about leadership and direction, but I don't think anyone in in an executive role managing teams wants to be the uh, helicopter executive hovering around, you know, the the downwind draft type of, uh, you know, drains everything and ruins the process. And we're, we're not perfect. I make mistakes. We all make mistakes. But I wouldn't really call it a mistake, you know, uh, in the word mistake is the word take. You know, people took the chance to do a different theory, perhaps not too far off base of the mission statement. And to me, that's courage. And uh, from there, there's refinement. So, yes, I look for people that are not uh, yes men, yes women, you know, that are, are willing to use uh, their intellect to the highest form and aptitude, too. An aptitude is not always uh, spelled out on, on a test or a quiz because in decision-making, it's not just looking at white papers and broadsheets, but it's also understanding the environment, too, of the marketplace, but also the opposing party or the client's uh, opinion and approach. So. Well, what I think is cool, you know, in terms of, you know, that, that your, your management style, so what you brought in is like the other people, like how you work together with other people and like the team structure that you've put in. So you've hired those people. And if you haven't hired those people, that's where you need to either develop the faith in the team, in that person that they're there, or, you know, reorganize the structure. Because even if you're the leader and the team is on there, much like you work with them, they work with you. And it's about finding that you know, that chemistry, that group dynamic that makes people work with you. And then the other thing is, you know, the, uh, in terms of the execution piece, which we'll, we'll switch to in a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, you cannot have success without failure. It's actually like a prerequisite, you know, to say that like, you're always successful all the time. So it's the one, not necessarily, let's just take a bunch of risks. Let's take calculated risks. But when you get those wins, it's because you've had the opportunity to go through and you've been given the space and the freedom to make mistakes and quote unquote fail um, so that you can be successful. So on that note, I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about the project side, you know, how you've done assembled teams, put them in, accomplish things. And, you know, from a strategic execution lens, what are either the things that you find you do or you've done really well that you would recommend to managers when it comes to launching new projects? Or what are some things to avoid when going into new projects, new business? I'll let you pick your own adventure there. Oh, <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> do I hit the avoid button on that question? No. Um, let, let's start with things to avoid. Okay. Avoid 
we do have a statement here at the firm of, you know, expansion is as close to a vortex as one could possibly get. Sometimes you don't want the oxygen sucked out of the room. So because we're a consultancy, every executive director on a daily basis is in the firing line from private sector and other sectors of individuals pitching and presenting opportunities uh, for different mission statements and things of that nature. So from that aspect, what to avoid? We take a much longer first look before we decide to work with an organization or an individual. So I think in doing that, there could be trepidatious walk the line at uh, the edge of a cliff. If we take too long in, during our vetting process, is that opportunity going to walk from the firm? I just had a team meeting with one of the directors and their team just about two weeks ago. And there was a bit of pressure in the office place of saying, uh, Ms. McComas, uh, you haven't signed off on these. Are we going to bring them into the firm or not? And I said, look, whatever the universe brings, which was met with clamor, of course. But I asked the director, do you feel that the vetting is all the way through? Can you say instinctually, factually, via data and analytics and all of our background work, that this would be something that at least has a 60% success ratio in the market? Because we're known for hitting a lot of home runs. And the director said, yes, of course. And I said, okay, then go ahead, pull the trigger on it. Let's do this. Should it have been something where we did it change a bit slower? Yes. So in that aspect, it took us longer to upstart the project and complete our goals once we were in movement on it. So what to avoid? If there's not the cycle completed of vetting and other vets are taking a higher risk position in the market, then it's okay to cut bait. You don't have to be everything to everyone, and you don't have to take every single project that comes across your desk. Now, I know that's kind of reversism from being a consultancy, but I think it's, it, it's extremely difficult sometimes as the marketplaces are constantly changing. There are a lot of new upstart firms with the technology base we have now and the white labeling. I wouldn't say there's competition to our organization, but there's always additional corporations that are building in succession. So avoidance, the avoid would be you do not have to take every opportunity that comes your way because rushing to something too quickly, the percent of the opportunity to fail becomes greater. So we look at the short-term and long-term, and I think that's a very interesting mix. Jumping on something quickly and quickly may be a week or two, quickly maybe six months, it may be a few years. We've had that happen many times where we said, no, thank you, it's not for us right now. The opportunity comes back to us in a year and a half. And at that time, we feel that the opportunity has grown larger than where it was before. So I think that's an avoidance. A second avoidance, I would say, would be understanding that not everything is going to meet the numeric mark. I would say the team and their sub-teams are incredibly driven individuals, Uh, very intense, great, great people, but they're also number-driven too, which is fantastic. We all love numbers. 
and percentages and things of that nature, but that doesn't always behoove what a great opportunity is. Something may have a lower marginal status, but in the long run, have a higher equity stake. So it's also balancing that and knowing when to avoid something at a higher scale margin and intake than something that looks like it's a little light and fluffy. Sometimes the light and fluffy stuff is actually very profitable at the end of the day. I, I hope that was a dynamic. I know I go a few ways around the barn sometimes. So that that's what I would say would be avoidance. So let me, if I can summarize the two points that you made, they are both around avoidance. On one hand, it's avoiding taking on projects too quickly if you can help it, even though you know you might be tempted and, and many entrepreneurs or entrepreneurial leaders have what we call shiny object syndrome where they get distracted by the new thing and once you know they're working on something else and something crosses their desk and they say let's that's cool but then they lose sight of their original you know vision or strategic perspective or strategic objective so number one is to avoid projects that new projects when you still have stuff that's sort of on your desk or that you're working on or jumping into something too quickly. And the other is avoiding projects. And I don't exactly know how to say this, but don't uh, say not picking projects only because of their financial benefit, but to also look at the holistic benefit of different projects and initiatives that you're putting on. So, you know, avoiding projects or not avoiding projects that are only financially related. So I've had people, I just recently heard this in a CEO group that I lead talking about, you know, there's the financial description, but there's also the narrative update. So combining both the qualitative and the quantitative opportunities, benefits, uh, direction of these different projects will give you a, a more complete, more holistic picture about why you're doing things and you know, I think that there was a time in, in strategy and in business where everything was really driven by by short-term gain and immediate profits. And I imagine in a lot of corporate Canada, corporate America, that's the same. Really it's looking at, okay, if we have this long-term vision and we have this long-term purpose, are these projects going to help us fulfill our purpose, not just in the short term, but in the medium term and long term and having a system to evaluate those projects and make sure that we're doing the right thing at all times. Yes. That was an incredibly fantastic summation, Anthony. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, <laughs> you, you, know, you, you said it better than myself. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's easier to edit than to create. So I appreciate that a lot. Um, so, you know, just as we, uh, as we finish here, are there any other, you know, words of advice that you would want to give a leader or a manager who is, you know, largely project based that probably has a lot more on their plate than they have the resources to handle? What would you tell them in, in the spirit of mentorship? Uh, what would you want them to know that they could walk away with and, and they can, you know, carry the day for the next uh, days and weeks as they move forward here? Yes. Uh, well, in tying it all up too, from a, a project standpoint and a humanitarian standpoint, I would say that presenting projects or something they feel adamant about that's going to leave the world a better place, even if upper management uh, executives uh, that they answer to may be adamant about, uh, how should I say this diplomatically? They don't see the 
global effects of taking on a certain project for positivity. And I don't want to get into the nonprofitism scenario, but I do think that what we're seeing in a fantastic way of late corporately, uh, through up the ladder and down the ladder, um, from employee to director to CMO to CEO, uh, even at the board of directorship levels, is that a, a conscious caring as far as, you know, trying to, you know, I'll, I'll use a laissez-faire term, but the give back. But if, let's just say, there are two apples and they're both shiny, why not take the one that's actually going to uh, leave the world a better place is a good way to say it. Everyone has different aspects of humanitarian interest. I think we all want to make the world a better place. However, if it's within our community, within ourselves, even if it's just holding the door for someone as they walk through it. So I think that's very key because if you're doing something that helps others during your day, whether it's within your own corporations that you work with and for or for yourself, I find that it definitely puts a pep in your step. So Key number one thing, take a little time for yourself, but also uh, never forget the art of the give back. And as well, the art of mentoring others. People may say, oh my goodness, I'm a junior executive. I'm only assistant to an executive. How can I mentor someone else? Well, guess what? If you're a junior executive and you used to be an assistant, or however you came up the ladder, there's always someone beneath you in the ladder. So there is no excuse not to do mentorship on a personal uh, corporate level or community level. And I think that's a really feel good. I think, you know, from an endorphin standpoint, it's uh, just as close as going to the gym or working out with your personal trainer. It's good for the mind, body and soul. Absolutely. And they have done a lot of studies in terms of the benefits that you can get by doing something nice for other people. So that's the selfish thing. If you want to do something for yourself, do something for others. And then, you know, in terms of what I heard you say, you know, sharing either whether it's conscious leadership in terms of how you approach people, being focused on uh, the, the, you know, triple bottom line of people, planet, profits, however you look at it. And then, you know, looking at the mentorship, because mentorship can be both ways. You know, even if you're mentoring somebody, you can get meant, you'll learn something in the process. And what I like to look at from leadership is, is responsibility, but not responsibility from a moral standpoint, but it's like the response to your ability. You've, and I think this is what you said, Melissa, is, you know, you have the ability to do it. Then how are you going to respond to that ability? Um, so that's responsibility. Um, so I, I encourage uh, all leaders listening to, you know, step up, do something good for yourself and others, and move your organization forward in whatever way makes the most sense for you. So, uh, Melissa, how can uh, people get hold of you? Well, they can just go to our website, pipermanisliterary.com. Uh, Facebook corporate at Piper Manis. All the information is there. Our corporate page on LinkedIn and all of the other little bells and whistles out there in the social media world. That's fantastic. Uh, my guest today has been Melissa McComas, who is the Chief Strategy Officer at Piper Mantis Literary. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you, Nancy. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed today's episode of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast, please rate it five stars on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and do something nice. Get some endorphins. Text somebody the podcast so they get an opportunity to listen to it as well. Also, if you are engaging in the strategic planning process, be sure to reach out to us 
we're available to facilitate your next session, or you can take our self-guided course at smestrategy.net slash course. And it's eight videos, eight hours of video that'll guide you through the planning process and help get your team aligned so that you can execute projects aligned, moving forward and getting great stuff done. My name is Anthony Taylor. This has been the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and until next time. If you're getting ready to lead the strategic planning process yourself, be sure to check out our strategic planning toolkit. It has video walkthroughs to guide you through each step in the planning process from vision to action planning. We'll also have workbooks and downloads to document your plan and best practices to help get your team bought in so the plan gets executed successfully. You can get instant access to all the tools, all the templates, and all the downloads at smestrategy.net slash course.